Welcome to today's Hemp Barons podcast, everyone. I'm host Joy Beckerman and so excited to be with you today. I'm particularly inspired about today's show with Kent Masterson-Brown of Witnessing History Foundation. And Kent is, as you will learn, an award-winning documentarian, a brilliant, amazing soul, and I am so privileged to be working with him on a project that I hope will change the world, believe will change the world, the seed and fiber of wealth. In the meantime, over the last week, we've had some developments. So yesterday was July 2nd at the time of this taping. And uh, according to data collected by the Washington Post yesterday, Thursday, July 2nd, the U.S. reported 55,220 new coronavirus cases, which had surpassed Wednesday, July's first single-day record of 52,789 coronavirus cases. So that's the greatest since the start of the pandemic. To this, I say, please stay home, please wear your masks in public, and wash your hands frequently, rinse and repeat. Additionally, the Black Lives Matter movement, criminal justice reform movement, socioeconomical political reform movement is taking root, particularly during this transformative time. One of the silver linings or blessings, as you might say, uh, that are coming with this pandemic is the ability for us to slow down and look at ourselves for a moment, reevaluate and work together and build community. And boy, are these movements growing. It's really exciting. Uh, There are all types of minorities now coming in, getting organized. We just need time here to continue to get organized and come out as a unified voice. And of course, we have civil rights activists from the 1960s who have been through everything, overcame police dogs and beatings and horrible violence, cheering on the Black Lives Matter protests and and the youngsters uh, and others that are leading this fight. It's incredible what's going on right now, and I have so much hope for the future. And I hope that if you're looking for a purpose and if you're looking for a place to belong, that you'll join uh, both the hemp movements and the Black Lives Matter movements or any movement regarding criminal justice reform. Law enforcement is obviously essential for a civilized society. We just need the right tool for the job. So law enforcement and police need to go where they belong. Professionally trained mental health counselors need to go where they belong. And other first responders who are especially trained need to be deployed where they belong. We need to work on addressing these issues as a society, as well as the underlying issues of where violence and self-medication, where all of these types of an, an addiction and abuse and including substance abuse, where all of that is coming from. Why are we medicating as a society uh, so so heavily? and suffering from all of the symptoms that those behaviors result in. And then with some really great, inspiring news, at least for myself, I have two beautiful sons, Phoenix Rising and Spiral Walking in Balance. Yes, those are actually their names. I gave birth to them at home in New York a long, long time ago. They're 26 and 28 years old now. Uh, They were student athletes in high school and, of course, throughout college. Um, And Phoenix Rising, my oldest, who was also a vet in the U.S. Army, he was a paramedic in the Civil Affairs Unit, just graduated. Graduated uh, last month from the University of Washington, magna cum laude, with a degree in law, economics, and public policy. Uh, and he is starting his master's in public policy at the University of Washington in the fall. He's heavily engaged um, in these movements. He is a researcher and staunch anti racist activist. 
My other son, Spiral Walking in Balance, my 26-year-old, was elected this week to be the president of the University of Kentucky MBA Student Association. So a very proud joy is coming to you uh, this week. It's just amazing to watch the lotus flowers that are our children unfold. And I am just so honored to to watch them walk and, and witness their journeys in the world. It's just a, a tremendous pleasure. Well, without further ado, we'll get back to my big baby, and that is the hemp movement and the hemp industries. And I uh, can't wait to tell you about what we're up to. Kent Masterson-Brown, his wife Genevieve, and I, and a, and a host of others with the seed and fiber of wealth. We'll talk to you again next week, everybody. In the meantime, stay healthy, stay safe, and like I said, stay home, wear masks in public, and wash your hands frequently. Bye, everyone. Well, hello, Kent Masterson-Brown. Thank you so much for being with us on Hemp Barons today. It's my pleasure. It's wonderful to be here. Oh, it is so wonderful to have you. I couldn't possibly be more excited that hemp has gained your attention, you, your incredible team wife, and witnessing history. Now, of course, in addition to practicing law for 47 years, uh, and being the first chairman of the <laughs> and being first chairman of the Gettysburg National Military Park Advisory, and so many other leadership roles in so many historical uh, type societies, you are on top of all of these things a historian and a documentarian of epic proportions, including highly uh, regarded and award winning. And I want us to get um, into that as the interview moves further along. But you, sir, after winning eight tellies, and we'll talk about that in a minute, have uh, decided you are going to be putting your energy into hemp history. And it's something that you've been working on a little bit. But tell us, Kent, what is it that brought you to hemp? Uh, what, what brought me to hemp, uh, Joy, was my love of Kentucky history. And Kentucky, as you know, and many in the hemp uh, industry and field uh, have known, uh, was probably in the 19th century, particularly the early 19th century, the largest producer of hemp in America. And so many people whose who, whose families were among the leading members of the Lexington, Kentucky community, where I live, reached that status because of their production and manufacture of hemp products. And um, I grew up with this. And you can't be someone interested in Kentucky history without reading books by James Lane Allen, the, 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 the novel writer in the years after the Civil War. And one of his books was the famous one, A Tale from the Kentucky Hemp Fields. And that gave you a romantic, now not necessarily totally truthful, but romantic idea of what Kentucky's hemp fields were like in the years before the Civil War. And actually, 
the, the, to read that is to think of the most lovely scenes of Kentucky you can imagine, and the most lovely aromas of what it must have been like to live around the hemp fields. And so, I mean, I grew up with this stuff. Right behind my own family's plot is James Lane Allen's stone. I mean, so I, in, the, in the cemetery. So I know how close all this is to me. And even though most of my work as a historian has been in the American Civil War and in early American history, hemp has always been around has always been there, particularly when I'm talking about Americans or studying or working on something about, Amer- uh, about Kentucky history. And so it was so huge in this state that you could not help but, getting, but get interested in it. And so the, uh, this is what got me to you. <laughs> and I am, I am just so blessed that we, that we have found each other <laughs> and uh, and Genevieve, obviously, Seed and Fiber of Wealth will be the name, is the name yes. of the documentary uh, that you are producing. It's yes. such a huge pleasure yes. and even bigger privilege um, to be... With your help, by the way. Oh, to be, to be <laughs> helping on it at all, to be any part of the telling of this story in the exquisite quality that it's going to be told. And again, the Telly Awards are so prestigious. They honor excellence in video and television across all streams. And it is highly unusual for a documentarian to win a Telly for literally every single document that that documentarian produces. Um, Documentary that that documentarian (laughs) produces. And yet yet you have, in fact, (laughs) talk about Timely, your most recent one, your most recent documentary, and I am so thrilled to have uh, to have you know known you at this time when you actually discovered this, and that is in the Declaration, all men are created equal. Abraham Lincoln in Illinois, 1830 to 1860, which of course you purposefully created to inspire yeah. unity, yeah. was awarded two 2020 Telly Awards. So it, it got the Telly in two categories not just as a history uh, documentary, but as a movie about history. So as I try to explain it to people, you know, as in if MGM had made a movie about history or Disney had made a movie about history, you know, and it was really wonderful, perhaps they would have wanted to get the Telly Award. But no, Kent's documentary is actually what won in in that regular category. So this is very, very exciting for hemp that we have garnered the attention of an exquisite historian and film producer um, with access to so many uh, of these records and artifacts that will be shown. And, and as you and I often discuss, and as I often say in the show, Kent, the, not just the United States government, it was globally, although the United States was actually pretty much the global bully in prohibition. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. It wasn't just the plant itself that was removed from our consciousness. It was all knowledge of the plant that was removed from our consciousness, which is why now when people hear 
the song of hemp, the story of hemp, the promise of hemp, it affects them on a whole nother level because they had been intentionally deprived of the information to begin with. Why don't you, will you tell us a little bit about when you, and I think since I happen to know the story, you want to tell us a little bit about how, what you discovered about Transylvania University, the very first university in the state of Kentucky, right there by, by the University of Kentucky, where my son is a master's student. You want to tell us a, a little bit about how, what you discovered there and what that meant to you, what kind of lights went on in your mind? Well, I mean, I, uh, Transylvania University was founded in 1780. It's the oldest college west of the Allegheny Mountains. It was once even commented upon by Thomas Jefferson as a place where one could learn from, quote, the old cask, meaning the, the ancients, the, the, the earliest of our teachings. Uh, and Jefferson supported that. So, it was not only founded very early in, in, not even here, it was founded first in what is now Boyle County near Danville. Then it was reformed in just outside of Lexington at Pisgah Church, and then ultimately wound up in Lexington, and it is still in the heart of Lexington, and <clears throat> is truly the most venerable institution <clears throat> this state has. But uh, uh, Transylvania University, though it began with its pioneer background, it could not have lasted long without the financial support of people of great means. And here is where hemp plays a role. Among those who were the early trustees of Transylvania were people like John Wesley Hunt, who moved to Lexington from Trenton, New Jersey. And John Wesley Hunt became one of the earliest producers, I mean, growers of hemp. And his farm is less than three miles from where I'm sitting right now. And John Hunt uh, raised hemp, but then got into the manufacturing of hemp products. And those products included uh, hemp bales to bale cotton, and also included uh, 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 hemp rope, which was used in not only domestic use of rope, but for the United States Navy in its rigging and sails for ships, battleships. And uh, John Wesley Hunt became a man of enormous fortune as a result of his uh, uh, adventures in the hemp raising as well as hemp manufacturing. Now, he was joined by lots of others, including his partner, John Brand. John Brand came from Scotland and moved here. He tried a hemp production venture in Scotland, and it failed, and he came to America. And here he joined forces with John Wesley Hunt, and the two made a fortune, both in the hemp raising as well as particularly the manufacturing of hemp products. Now, this is all 
in the years between 1805 and 1820. And notice that spans the War of 1812, as well as Napoleon's invasion of Russia. And the Napoleonic War, together with the War of 1812, raised the specter of the use of Kentucky hemp as opposed to Russian hemp, which heretofore was used almost exclusively in the maritime industry. Indeed, Napoleon intentionally invaded Russia so that it could cut off the supply of the English Navy's hemp, and he was quite successful in that strategy. Oh, oh, absolutely. And of course, gave the United States, specifically Kentucky, the opportunity to uh, to seize that that moment and that market. Yes. And then later on, of course, in history, as you well know, uh, the Japanese invaded Manila uh, in World War II to cut off the For United... the same reason. Yes, to cut off the United States Navy's supply of hemp. For Manila hemp. Uh, and that is where Hemp for Victory, the USDA's pro- uh, film came in, a 13 and a half minute film. I always ask people to go to youtube.com and type in Hemp for Victory. Um, and the United yes. States government had to distribute 400,000 pounds of hemp seeds, farmers from Kentucky to Wisconsin. <laughs> and for four That's years, right. That's right. and for four years, they produced 42,000 tons of fiber annually for the war uh, until it ended, yes. as you well know. But let me ask you this. With regard to the trustees yes. at Transylvania University, what, what did you find in common with mm-hmm. each of the trustees of that university? They all were growers and manufacturers of hemp. Every one of them. Every last one of them. Every last one of them. Well, as we talk about how all of this wealth was generated, I know you of all people, Kent, uh, have a very deep understanding um, and huge heart of humanitarian, of unity, of oneness. You've spent so much of your life's work promoting and spreading the message of unity and oneness. And I would like us to talk about how hemp came to Kentucky. And of course, I want to know, or I want the listeners to know, uh, your incredible insight on slavery, specifically in Kentucky, And specifically around hemp, brother, okay. lay it on us. Well, let me go to number one, and that is how hemp came to Kentucky. Most of the settlers, not all of them, but most of the earliest settlers of Kentucky came from Virginia. Uh, Daniel Boone came from North Carolina, although his family had traversed Virginia to get there from Pennsylvania. Still, he came from North Carolina, but most of the settlers came from Virginia. Now, Virginia, in the 17th century, when the earliest settlers were settling Jamestown, uh, they were introduced by the Native American tribes living along the Potomac and the James River to a hemp product, a hemp plant that they were growing and cultivating. Now, the the English settlers of Virginia, coming from England, also were there at the behest of the crown. And so the crown insisted that they raise hemp 
Why? Because hemp was used for maritime uses, ships, rigging, sails. You could make, you could, you can use hemp to make almost anything, Joy. You, you know that. I mean, almost anything. That's, that's the glory of that, of that plant. But they, Britain was interested in the maritime uses of it prominently. And so many of the settlers came here understanding that England and the crown wanted them to raise hemp. But they were also introduced now to the fact that Native Americans living in Virginia were raising a hemp-like plant. We don't know exactly what that plant was, but it was a hemp-like plant that was used for the same kind of purposes. And so we got the idea uh, over time of these settlers using Indian hemp and recommending Indian hemp because it was grown here. Well, they got seeds from Britain to plant here and they raised hemp on their own, but they also raised Indian hemp. And in fact, George Washington comments on the fact that every planter should raise Indian hemp. Make the most of the Indian hemp seed and sow it everywhere, as George Washington says in those Mount Vernon diaries. And, and I did not realize, I'm learning now, and I consider myself quite a historian, but boy, have I met my match and, and a mentor in this to the nth degree, is at the behest of the crown. Now, that's fascinating to me because, of course, I often teach to lawyers and otherwise, including in continuing legal education seminars, and this is the truth of it, of course, that our very first cannabis law in the United States was in 1619 in the Jamestown Colony, Virginia, ordering farmers to make trial of the Indian hemp seed. And I'm now learning for the first time that was not necessarily a United States, I'm sorry, an American, colonial American directive. That was at the behest of the crown, is what you're telling me. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Uh, they, wanted, they wanted hemp raised because there was no place to raise it there. And so one of the reasons they established colonies, and frankly, the, whole, the colonies in America were raised in part because of the need for hemp. So it may very well be the, may be the spark for the colonization of what became America. That's stunning to me. But it is true. Absolutely. No, uh, absolutely stunning. Wowzer, wowzer. Let's move on, shall we, to a part of our history that I, we are having to come to terms with, this, this suppression of genocide and raping and, and pillaging and violence against humanity, against women, against families, against people of peace, and, and certainly against war, warlike enemies. Um, but when we, when we discuss genocide, when we discuss slavery and the fact that America was built on these inhumane, violent practices, uh, that we're now finally, some 400 years later, uh, starting to come to terms with and as, as a people, as a race, to heal from. Let's talk a little bit, put a lens specifically on Kentucky um, and what the story is there, the history with hemp and slavery in Kentucky. Well, I would say this, uh, Joy. I, I would say America came to terms with it 
in the 1860s in a extraordinarily bloody civil war where probably more than one and a half million people lost their lives. People look at 750,000 as those deaths in the civil war. But I'm telling you, I've studied all those returns and it's well over a million, million and a half. After the, with the civil war now, which was the defining moment in America's dealing with the institution of slavery, Kentucky uh, was a slave state, but the only crop that was a, a, a crop that required a large amount of manpower to raise and harvest was hemp. We were not a cotton-growing state, Kentucky. We, we, we grow a few acres of long-stem cotton in the far southwest of Kentucky in the Jackson Purchase, but nowhere else. Where we were a, a, a hemp-growing state, which was in the center, central Kentucky, is what mandated us being a slave state. Without hemp in Kentucky, there would have been no slavery in Kentucky of any proportions at all. And then let me just ask you this, if I could, Kent. Yes. And so I'm sure we have some listeners right now that are saying any at all. Is there any way to qualify that? I mean, certainly, it, it, certainly there was some form. I think we were always dealing with discrimination, of course. Of course. Of course. Yeah, what I'm talking about is a slave state in the in in comparison to the slave states of the Gulf states. Uh, we were nothing like that, but for hemp. Now, was slavery introduced into Kentucky in its earliest uh, settlement? Yeah, it was. Uh, many settlers came to Kentucky with slaves, and we know that from the siege of Boonesboro. We know that from the siege of other stations where slaves played prominent roles in those sieges. But those were one among many. Where you get to hemp production is large numbers of them. And when, if Kentucky was not a hemp-producing state, it would not have slavery in the fashion that we have come to know slavery in America. And so it was really because hemp was a very labor-intensive crop, required lots of hands, lots of people in the fields uh, planting and then particularly harvesting a hemp, which was a long and uh, an, an involved process. As we often say, we love that it's the longest, strongest fiber in the world after it's harvested and processed. Yeah. The fact that it's the longest, strongest fiber in the world before it's harvested makes harvesting and processing quite difficult. And, you know, I just I have so many statistics flushing yeah. through me right now of modern day, which, you know, that less than 2% of agricultural lands in the United States 
are owned by black landowners and the and yeah. the tremendous yeah. amount of healing that's going on even in Kentucky as yeah. former several generations later we have black families growing hemp you know when they know that their ancestors and they have traced back that lineage through yeah. you know scrawled manuscripts <laughs> as you, that you know so well you've yeah. combed through volumes and volumes and by the way those people knew more about planning and raising and harvesting hemp than any other people who had ever lived in Kentucky. Of course. Ever. Of course. No, it's just, it, it, it's just so amazing. And then just so to give the listener sort of a picture of what it's, what it's like hemp after the harvesting. And again, we're talking hard to harvest, hard to lift. Uh, but on top of it, the combing of those vast fibers, yeah. the outer bark yeah. of the hemp stalk, and w- yes, yeah, when you're when yeah when you're when you're talking about raising hemp for its fiber, and I'm talking here about fiber, uh, what you've got to do is not only plant it, which is usually in April, uh, it takes it's a very fast growing plant, and you know in in four to six weeks, it's already reached 14 feet in height. And then once you cut it in order to, this is the first act of harvesting, you cut it, then you stack it, and you stack it until probably November, when you then take it down and you start to break it. And you break it so that you can release the fiber in it because it's the fiber you want. And the fiber you release by, by hemp brakes, which are devices, sim- simple wooden devices that simply break the outer shell of the plant and expose the, the fiber. And you garner the fiber. Indeed, you're talking about the breaking of the stock. And so, folks, who, if you're listening right now, if you just want to Google later hemp break and really see what that looked like. Now, of course, there was were more mechanized inventions in, in modern day, but we're talking about basically two giant pieces of wood that you're taking a hemp stock a very long hemp stalk, and you're lifting this piece of wood up and down, up and down, breaking it, banging it against that long, strong hemp stalk to, to, as you say, release the fibers, separate that outer bark, the bass from that inner woody core, the herd. Um, and, and also, of course, it's back then for their purposes, maybe just for rope, there was this letting it stack until November. But bear in mind, in the modern day for various textiles and the many other applications and pens for nanotechnology and air and space um, and, and as a superior use to graphene, et cetera, et cetera, that certainly we have different grades of fiber that are being developed and so on and so forth. So not all fiber is stacked, but certainly it was then. And we're talking about that kind of manual labor. And I just want to make sure that I also have folks visualize when I say the combing of that outer vast fiber, it's really picture and, and understand the repetitive shoulder injuries that had to have occurred, not just on the soreness 
that these people had to endure uh, to, to carry this crop right. through for, for Kentucky. So the repetitive right. injuries just from the constant breaking and banging of the big heavy boards, right. but then taking right. that long fiber, that vast fiber, and slapping it like a whip, combing it over these beds of nails, essentially heckles is what they're called, but the nails were the comb of the bast fiber. And you're taking this heavy fiber and you're throwing it over your shoulders, slap through the nails, doing it again, slap through the nails. And imagine the soreness, even if you did that for 30 minutes, Kent, how that would feel. Mm-hmm. Just amazing. Yeah, Just, right. Mm. But I want you to know too, uh, Joy and everybody, that with the early pioneer into Kentucky, the early pioneer brought hemp, and they raised it next to the fortified stations they built to protect themselves against British and uh, Native American attacks. And those hemp uh, crops were raised the same way, but by those early settlers who used the hemp to produce their clothes their shoes, their bedding, their what would would be equivalent to rugs or carpets. They used them for everything. And but all all of those people, the the early settlers as well as the African American slaves later, did it the same way. And and all of them went through the same process. And it's just that because hemp was so magnificently adapted to Kentucky's soil, it became a prominent crop, financial crop. And as a consequence, that led to a slave population helping to uh, plant, grow, and harvest it because it was so labor-intensive if you grew it commercially, which the pioneer didn't, but later the, the people in Kentucky did, just like cotton. And so really you could say that but for hemp, Kentucky really would not have been a slave state. Now, it would have been. There would have been incidences of it, uh, localized, small, very, very small in number, but uh, it would not have been like it was in 1860. So, I mean, that's the way it is. Indeed. And and like it's comparative states, Mississippi, uh, Georgia. Oh, yeah. Nothing like them. Uh, But it was close because of hemp, because hemp required so much labor to plant, grow, and harvest. And, you know, I, uh, and I so want to keep our, our show for the listeners today focused on history. (laughs) And also, if you don't know your history, you don't know your destiny. And, and which is, of course, why. Right, exactly. That's great. That's a great, that's a great quote. Indeed. And, and of course, our own Bob Marley, but, you know, utilizes that quote and know your history, know your destiny. It's really a part of the whole 
cannabis movement in, right. in all of its right. forms. And, right. and you, you, sir, are such a, a beacon of light in really uncovering our history. And I, I just can't help but say here that understanding the the slavery aspect of, of hemp, to say nothing of the slavery aspect of the foundation of this country, and hemp was indeed part of that, we see that hemp can be such a healing to the reclaiming of the land and the redistribution of wealth. Um, and yet, with the Farm Bill of 2018 that legalized hemp as an agricultural commodity. Finally, and good. Yes, it's part of the sausage-making process that is legislation. Uh, during <laughs> during yeah, right. during the negotiation of within the Farm Bill Conference, and as you well know, this is when the House version of the Farm Bill and the and the Senate version of the Farm Bill come together, and various representatives from the House and the Senate are chosen to be part of the conference, and then it becomes their job to reconcile the two bills. Well, during that process, right. there was a compromise made because we wanted to expand the definition of hemp to include extracts and compounds and derivatives and make it very clear to the DEA that there was no, not going to be a single part of this plant that wasn't completely removed from the Controlled Substances Act. Mm -hmm. And yet there were mm -hmm. some uh, legislators, congressmen, um, who did not want that expansion. And part of the compromise that was made was that they wouldn't fight the inclusion of all of the parts of the plant within the definition, but then this is all hysteria. This is all THC drug war, the failed drug war hysteria. They said, okay, we'll stop fighting you on that, but we want to add in a 10-year drug felony conviction prohibition so that if you have been convicted of a drug felony within 10 years of wanting to apply for a hemp production license under a state or tribal or federal plan, you're automatically disqualified. And by the way, we'll make an exception if you already have a mm -hmm. license under an agricultural yeah. pilot program, we'll grandfather you in. But if you come up with another drug felony conviction, then you're out again for another 10 years. So we're sitting here saying, and meanwhile, the yeah. cannabis industry, the adult use and medical cannabis industry are all over social equity. And, but the hemp movement has not come together in that way. And so here we have now that the promise of the delivery, uh, the, the promise no. of hemp, which is this no. beautiful opportunity, particularly for the people who arguably no. it belongs to the most, are being told in federal law, oh, you have been the most disproportionately impacted by the drug war. And also as a bonus, you don't get to take advantage in any of the opportunities of the promise of hemp. Like a double whammy. And You know, Joy, mm. that... You know, that is the one, one reason why I have become interested in producing a film about the history of hemp. The only way I believe it can ever, ever finally get recognized is if we produce a documentary film that will be broadcast everywhere. And by the way, this one will be everywhere on public television particularly, uh, to tell people <clears throat> what this crop really is, what, it has, what its history has been, and what it can do. This is a crop that is there at the birth of the republic. 
and has been there ever since in enormous ways. Well, you know, what a great way for us to wrap up this interview. And Kent, believe me, we are going to be having you on again, brother, because it's just such I a hope gift. so. I'll be delighted. <laughs> many, many times more. It is such a gift to have the incredible knowledge uh, that you have about the history of the world's most versatile, valuable plant that is here to serve all of the needs of humanity and, and the planet and animals. But when we say that this documentary like your other eight Kelly Award-winning documentaries, is going to be seen all around the United States. It's actually going to be seen all around the world. Can we tell the listeners about the scope of the audience of the, of, that your uh, films attract? Yeah, that my, my, my films have attracted an enormous, uh, enormous audiences. Uh, let me give you an idea. We have a YouTube channel. My my foundation does witnessing history education foundation. We've only been active in that since October of last year, and already we have over 1.2 million views. These are ordinary folk who, and, and according to my web designer. Uh, are watching this on their televisions, not on some computer. They're watching it on their televisions. And they respond. They send in comments. And the comments are almost 95% uh, uh, favorable. They love what they watch. And And the whole mission of my foundation is to get people to finally see something about American history and be entertained by it. And that's the whole mission of what we do. And it seems to be bearing out fruit just in the YouTube channel. This is really, uh, YouTube's obviously that's completely huge, but let's talk about the scope of the audience outside of any form of social media whatsoever. And I, and I thought you might even lead with this okay. because it's, it's just incredible. Okay. And that's what I was about ready to yes. do. And that is, here, we, we, our films, we have a partnership with Kentucky Educational Television. And that partnership includes they always broadcasting our films. And they have for, year, for every year since 2007, 2006, they, they have broadcast every film we've ever produced. Excuse my dog who's barking at someone passing by. Uh, but... Uh, <laughs> that adds a little realism to this. <laughs> uh, but, but more than that, uh, Kentucky Educational Television has always taken our films and proposed them to the National Educational Telecommunica- Telecommunications Association in Columbia, South Carolina. They are the catalog arm of PBS. And what they do is they take films that are produced for individual network affiliates, of which there are 247 around the country. And they then say, I like those. We'll make them available to every other affiliate in the system. And our films are universally accepted by uh, uh, what we call NEDA, the National Educational Telecommunications Association, and they are universally a signal to every PBS network affiliate 
in the United States, the Virgin Islands, and the District of Columbia. And for those listeners that don't know what PBS is, we're talking the public broadcasting system. Public broadcasting service, yeah, PBS. The uh, you get them on TV television. It's the it's the public broadcasting service of America, uh, publicly financed, and uh, they have 247 affiliates in every state in the union, and those 247 affiliates have. Uh, uniformly received our films as they're produced after Kentucky Educational Television broadcasts them. What a service that you're doing. And, and I, again, am so grateful to be a part of it. Now, this is an entirely nonprofit endeavor. The Witnessing History Foundation, Inc. is a 501c3 nonprofit uh, charitable foundation. And you don't do this to make money. You don't do this for any type of fame. This is your life's work. This is your life's purpose to uncover the darkness, to tell the story, and to bring it in a way, as you say to folks, that is not only as exquisitely vetted and accurate as possible, that is delivered to the viewer in a way that they can receive it and that they're open to receiving it. This is such a huge blessing, the seed and fiber of wealth. And, and right now, uh, I know that you're looking for sponsorships, again, to produce this film, which I think you've estimated is going to take almost a quarter of a million dollars to produce. Um, and uh, folks who might be interested in in sponsoring this film, and I know the very first sponsor, and we thank you so much for that, of this film, is the U.S. Hemp Roundtable, based in Lexington. We're so, so uh, honored to be a part of this. Uh, they can go to seedandfiberofwealth.com. That's seedandfiberofwealth.com. That's the name of this documentary. Um, and you can find out ways to be a part of this historical endeavor that is going to change the United States and it's going to change the world. We learn so much about ourselves through film and you are a master storyteller oh. of the reality of our history, Kent. We're so, so blessed to have you in hemp. Thank you very much, Joy. Thank you very much. Before we have you back on again, and believe me, as I said, Kent, we're going to, <laughs> what else would you like to make sure the listeners know before we say goodbye? Is there anything else? Yeah, one thing, one thing. And that is, we, we don't make these films to make any money. We raise the capital, which is what we're doing with this film. We raise the capital in order to produce it. And then we provide it to broadcasters, including public broadcasting, free. Uh, we provide it to all kinds of cable networks, free. We put it on cable channels, free, so that everyone possible can watch our films without any cost to them whatsoever. We want people to understand American history. That's what we do. What a heart song. What a, a contribution. And again, just such an honor and a privilege to be a part of it and to be able to donate any of my skills and talents and resources to be able to tell this story with you, Kent. Thank you so much for being with us on Hemp Barons today, brother. We can't wait to have you back. Thank you, my dear. It's so good being with you again. Talk to you soon, Kent. Warrior on. You bet. 
Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Tune into a major journey podcast today, where guests take listeners on journeys and immerse themselves in the roller coaster ride both in and out of the cannabis space that brought them to where they are today. Throughout our conversations, guests share valuable lessons that they've learned along the way that listeners can use to empower growth both in their personal and professional lives. Check out A Major Journey today on all major podcast platforms.